0: If you would join me in opening up your Bibles to the book of Ruth as we continue this Lord's Day to walk through the book of Ruth together. If you were with us last week, you know, we started out in our study by looking at some background information and the, the context in which this letter takes place, this narrative in salvation history. And we talked about how this was during the period of Judges. This is a time uh, between when God had led his people. Uh, out of Egypt into the Promised Land. And and during that time in the Promised Land, before there were kings in Israel, there was this period of the Judges. And during this time, it was a very dark time in the life of God's people. And in fact, there was wickedness that abounded. And we looked at how the book of Judges ended with this reminder that during that time, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But during this time, we have this this story, this narrative Of Ruth. Now the context happens in a family who leaves the promised land and goes to the land of Moab, a very wicked place. And they go there in order to find provision, to find food. And in that uh, city of Moab, in that land, they experience great loss. Uh, Elimelech, the father, dies. Uh, Naomi is left a widow. Her two sons die. And where we left off is she is there now in this foreign land uh, with her two daughters-in-law. We've seen a picture of those who have walked by sight. Uh, But today, as we look to the text, we will see a picture of what it means to walk by faith. And so we're going to look, beginning there, at verse 6 and continue through the end of the chapter. And out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand, as I read this passage for us. This is what our sovereign Creator God says to us through His Word today. A speaking of Naomi, it says this, verse 6, Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go! Go! Return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. She was determined to go with her. She said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came into Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. You would pray with me. Father God, we live in a day and age when We can't even get the weather forecast right. We think we know so much, and yet so often we are misguided and ill-informed and making our best guesses. But in this world of uncertainty, You have given us something that is sure something that is guaranteed, something we can know. It is Your revealed Word, and You have it here before us today that we might learn from it and grow from it. So Father, we pray that Your Spirit would be at work to help us learn, to help us repent, to help us believe and have faith, to help us to walk by faith and not by sight. And We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. That instruction to us to, to walk by faith, not by sight. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. But we see a, a picture of it really throughout God's word, this, this continual encouragement that we are to walk by faith, by trusting in the Lord, not by sight and by what we can see. That which we think we can perceive. But the question really is: what what does that actually mean? I mean, what does it actually look like to walk by faith? And, and how do we know that, that the steps we take are by faith and not by sight? And, and what ultimately happens? What's the fruit that comes from walking by faith? And how does that compare to the fruit that comes from walking by sight? I mean, the great thing about God's Word is that He not only gives us instructions like this to walk by faith, not by sight. He gives us real-life examples of what happens when we go down either one of those paths. And so last Lord's Day, we saw in Elimelech a a, a picture of what happens when we walk by sight. Uh, Here was a man who was worried about providing for his family. Uh, Here was a man who was living there in the promised land, in the land where God said he would provide for his people, and yet there is no provision, there's a famine. And he has to make a decision. Will I stay here and trust in the Lord to provide, or will I go outside of the promised land? And he not only goes outside of the promised land, he goes to one of the most wicked places and takes his family among the most wicked people that we see during this time of the judges he goes to moab and the moabites and and he goes there because he's walking by sight he's not trusting in the lord we talked about how during this period in salvation history god would bring things like famines as judgment on his people in order to call them to repentance but rather than repent elimelech leads his family and walking by sight and seeking provision and not trusting in the lord And things go from bad to worse. As we saw, it's there in that land that Elimelech dies. And there Naomi, his widow, has a choice. Will she now repent and go back to the promised land? She doesn't do that. In fact, she goes even further in her sin. She gives her two sons over to the Moabites in order to marry their women. And then her sons die. And so we're left there at the end of that opening passage with this Israelite widow in a foreign place, a foreign land, with her two Moabite daughters-in-law. And the question is, will she now walk by faith? And that's where we'll pick up as we walk through this text together. And as we do, the first thing we'll see is a continuing example of what it looks like not to walk by faith, but to walk by sight. Which takes us to that first point there in your outline. Walking by sight leads us to blame God when life is hard. Walking by sight leads us to blame God when life is hard. This is very much Naomi's response. Now, as we begin in this passage in verses 6 and 7, it sort of appears at first like Naomi's repentance. I mean, she is now leaving Moab, this wicked place, and she's going back to the land of promise, the land of blessing, the land where God's promises will be fulfilled among His people. And so the indication there can be, well, it appears she's repentant. But again, notice the text. Notice why she is going home. She's there in Moab and in those fields she hears that the Lord has visited His people and given them food. And so the reason that Naomi's going back to Judah is the very reason that she left Judah to begin with. She left there because there was food in Moab. I'll go to Moab. Now there's food in Judah. I'll go to Judah. She's very much walking by faith and not by sight. She is indeed not putting her trust here in the Lord. And remember again, famine in the land was a sign of God's judgment on the people. And so the indication here is that that, that God's people in Judah have repented, and now He is blessing His people with this harvest, but there seems to be no repentance here in Naomi. And so, she's now going to journey back to Judah, and she starts out in this journey taking her daughters-in-law with her, Orpah and Ruth. But somewhere along the journey, she decides to tell them they shouldn't go, that they should turn and go back to Moab. The question is, why? Why does she give this instruction? Well, there are a couple of options here. The first one, and where the text can tend to lean for some, is that she seems to have a genuine concern about their future. And see, the 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 culture, the context here among the Israelite people would be that in this situation, her her sons had died. She had these two daughter-in-laws who were widows. And in that culture, in that context, we've talked about this before, it would have been customary that then they would have married the the next available son. That They would have married essentially who had been before their brother-in-law. But Naomi makes it clear, I don't have any more sons. In fact, she goes on to say, are you guys going to wait around for me to get married? And even if I could get married and even if I could have another child, are you going to wait for that child to grow to the point when you can marry them? No, no, you need to go home to the Moabites because if you go back there, you stand a better chance of finding a husband and a family. See, for Ruth and Orpah, that is what blessing looked like in their culture and their context. These women had gotten married, but it appears they had been barren there in Moab. They had no children. And so what Naomi saying to them is, I-, I want you to be blessed. I want you then to go home and receive this blessing of finding a husband and ultimately having families. She's essentially saying, there's no hope for me. God's bitter against me. If you go with me to Judah, there's no hope for you either. So it could be that that's what Naomi's doing. But because we see such a picture with Naomi of walking by sight and not by faith, I'm not so certain that's what she's doing here. I'm not so certain she's really that concerned about Ruth and Orpah. I mean, consider, for example, what she's telling them to do. Later in the text, we see her very clearly say to Ruth, go back to Moab, as your sister-in-law did, and go back to those gods. (laughs) Not exactly an evangelistic picture here of Naomi. Naomi. And not exactly one who wants to lead these women to Judah that they might come to understand and worship the one true God. She seems to have very little concern about their soul. She just tells them to go back to Moab, go back to those foreign gods. And I think the reason she does this is perhaps she's not so concerned about them as she is about herself. I mean, consider again the context. God's people there in Judah have been under the judgment of God and God has brought this famine upon them. And now the appearance is there's been repentance, something has changed, so now God is going to bless His people. And now Naomi on this journey perhaps is picturing herself walking there back into Bethlehem, back into Judah, and bringing these Moabites with her. And I think she understands how they might be received. (laughs) The people of God who are now experiencing the blessing of God may look at those Moabites and say, listen... Naomi, you can come, but they can't come here. That they're a part of the reason that God curses. That they're wicked. We can't bring wickedness in our camp. If we bring wickedness in our camp, then God's going to bring famine back on us. And we just got out of that famine. We want to experience God's blessing. And so perhaps Naomi's thinking about herself and how she might be received if she brings these Moabites with her. Perhaps she's even thinking about how the people are going to view her and the decision she made to give her sons over To these Moabites, to do that which God strictly forbade, and to allow them to intermarry with the Moabites. Perhaps then she's going to think, well, then they're going to start questioning why I left in the first place, and they're going to see that I wasn't trusting in God. But in whatever it is, I think Naomi's just really calculating this based on steps of sight, not steps of faith. Whatever the case, we see that it seems Naomi isn't trusting in God here for Ruth and Orpah's future. She's not considering that which will unfold, that that whole opportunity of a kinsman redeemer and how ultimately Boaz will marry Ruth, this was customary, this is something she would have known about, and yet it never comes up in this conversation. She simply looks at the options on the page and says, well, y'all choose this one because it looks the most reasonable. Naomi does not stand out to us as someone who's walking by faith. She stands as someone who is walking by sight. She's not seeking to lead these women into the worship of the one true God because I don't believe she's truly worshiping the one true God herself. In fact, notice her attitude towards God there in verse 13. She tells her daughters in law, It's exceedingly bitter for me, to me, for your sake, because the, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And now consider what Naomi's saying here. This this tells us a lot about what she believes about God. I mean, first it tells us that Naomi believes that, that God is sovereign, that God is in control. She attributes her situation to God because of His providence and His sovereignty. She looks at God and says, God is in control. He's in control of my situation. And because He's in control of this and I'm suffering, she comes to the conclusion that God is against her. And so she believes rightly in the sovereignty of God but, but I think she believes wrongly here about the goodness of God. She doesn't believe God is good at all. So she believes God is out to get her. So she's not taking any responsibility for what happened to her here. It's kind of like you, maybe parents, grandparents, you've had this situation with kids at times where you, you walk into a situation and there's obviously been some type of disruption, disagreement, brawl that's taken place and, and you're trying to sort things out. I don't know what your experience is, but I'll tell you a little bit of mine. Rarely in those situations, this one child say, uh, Father, it was all my doing. Uh, I am very sorry. I've led my sister, my brother into sin. Uh, I need to let you know this is all my fault. Now, wh- how does that normally go? Well, they... Well, you don't understand. Well, no, it was... No, no, they did that. Well, no, no, it's their... We're so quick. We, we, we do that too. We, we blame others for our problems. And notice who it is. Naomi is blaming here. <laughs> that this isn't just some sibling rivalry. She, she looks at her hardship and her calamity and she says, it is God's hand that is against me. This is God's fault. He has done this. He has made me bitter. She rightly understands God is sovereign. But, but she is incorrect and completely misses out on what the Scripture says about the goodness of God. She doesn't see God as good at all. And friends, in her response, honestly, she, she gets some things right that we don't even get right today. I mean, at least she understands in her suffering that God is sovereign. Oftentimes, in our suffering, we just push that to the side real quick. But what do you mean God's in control? <laughs> because if God's in control, then I wouldn't suffer. If God's in control, then this bad thing wouldn't happen. So rather than wrestle with the biblical truth and narrative that we see over and over and over again about God's sovereignty, even in our calamity, we just adopt a very emotional based understanding of God. And this is prevalent in our day. Of course, the last couple of decades it's taken a doctrinal title of open theism some of you have heard that term Uh, open theism is the belief that uh, god is limited in what he knows and limited in what he can do so when you're suffering well god didn't know you were going to suffer because god would have done something to keep you from suffering when when hard times hit well well god is mourning with you god god had no idea that was coming and so what it does is it, it just lowers the biblical understanding of who God is in order to make it more palatable to us today. So rather than basing what we believe about God, about God's Word, we base what we believe about God based on our experience and that which makes us feel better. So Naomi had better theology than many of us in her suffering because at least she got that part right, that God is sovereign We see throughout the Scripture, God is Lord over life and of death. God is in full control. And that's why, I believe, Naomi wrestled with this other part and why we wrestle with it, if we get that part right, of, well, then how can God be good? I mean, this is the question of the problem of suffering. If God really loves us and God is for us, then why do bad things happen to us? If God is sovereign, then He can't be good because if He's good, well, He wouldn't let this happen, would He? And this is where Naomi goes. She says, well, He's sovereign, but He's not good. So she blames Him for her problems. And what she misses here, and what we so often miss in our suffering, and our trials, is the picture that we have throughout the Scripture that God indeed is sovereign and God indeed is good. And there are times that God is working in such a way that we may not be able to fully grasp it or comprehend it, but ultimately, ultimately, it is for His glory. And He is still good in the midst of our pain. He does not abandon us in the midst of it. And He's still there and He's still sovereign. We see a beautiful picture of this in Genesis chapter 50. When we walked through this book years ago, perhaps you remember... Very clearly, this scene at the end of Genesis where you have Joseph, who Joseph, I mean, if there was ever anybody in the Scripture who'd experienced loss, I don't know what your sibling rivalries have been like, but his siblings threw him in a pit, and they wanted to kill him. But they decided instead of killing him, they'd just sell him into slavery. And then once he's sold into slavery, God's hand's still on him, and he's blessing him, and yet he is betrayed, he is lied about, he is falsely imprisoned. All these terrible, terrible things happened to Joseph. If anyone had a reason from the world to shake their fist at God and say, God, You have done this to me. God, I am bitter toward You. It would have been Joseph. But there's that scene at the end of Genesis where now God has used all of this to bring Joseph into a position of prominence and of power through which he's actually going to save the people of God from famine, including his own siblings who had sought to put him to death. And there's this scene at the end of Genesis where now his father has passed, his brothers stand before him, and they're confident he's going to kill us now. He's going to bring out His vengeance on us. He's just been waiting for the day. And this is what Joseph says to them. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive just as they are today. Well, we see in this passage a a picture of how in the midst of pain and trial and suffering, God is sovereign and God is good. But we are tempted when we suffer not to see God is good at all because we are tempted in our suffering to walk by sight and not by faith. I mean, consider your own trials and hardships. Do you look to these things and do you see them as part of God's plan? Do you believe that God is sovereign over your suffering? See, that, that is the message of the book of Ruth. That, that God is providentially in control of these things. And even when the bottom's is falling out, and friends, listen, it's, this goes beyond famine. There are people dying here. There, there are wicked things happening here. And yet the big picture we see when we're, we can step back, we can look from beginning to end and we can see how, how God is working in the midst of all of this to bring about His good purposes and to bring about His plan. God's not only in control when something good happens, He's in control when pain and suffering happen. But we don't see that if we're just focused on ourselves. And oftentimes in our hardship and our pain, that that is our temptation is to focus on, well, this isn't how I thought it would be. My needs aren't being met. Life is hard. Therefore, I don't know that God is good. And that's where we see Naomi. But notice, she's not the only one in this chapter. We see here the tale of another widow, of Ruth. And what we see in her is one who, rather than walking by sight though she had every reason to, God works in such a way that she is the example of the one who walks by faith. Which brings us to that second point there in your outline. Walking by faith then leads us to trust in God when life is hard. It leads us to trust in God when life is hard. So rather than shaking our fist at God and blaming God in the midst of our hardship, when we walk by faith, that leads us to trust in Him and His plans and His goodness. That's not what Naomi did. But notice what Ruth does. And again, as you notice that, consider Ruth was in the midst of a hardship too. Orpah was in the midst of a hardship too. That these two women had abandoned their people in order to marry these foreigners. That these foreigners who'd come into their land to feast off of their wealth, who'd left their land of famine, these foreigners who years before the Ruth's family had sought to curse them, had withheld provision from them. Ruth and Orpah probably were then considered to be outsiders among their own people because they had married these foreign Israelites. And then after marrying them, they were barren. that They weren't able to have children. Perhaps the family and friends around them were looking at them and saying, look, now, you are definitely cursed. You, you shouldn't have married these people and, and their false gods they worshipped. You just should have stayed among your own, the Moabites. And now the gods have judged you. And now their husbands die. Surely those around them would have thought further judgment had come upon them. And so perhaps for Ruth and Orpah, they were thinking like Naomi, there's just nothing left for us. (laughs) And so we'll go with Naomi to her homeland, but they're probably thinking there's nothing for us there either. And then along the way, then Naomi has this heart-to-heart with them and says, listen, I, I think it's best that you go back to Moab. And as she articulates it, apparently she made a pretty good case because... Orpah, who it appears is walking by sight as well, says, that, that sounds about right. I'm going to go back. Maybe I'll find a husband. But notice what Ruth does. See, Orpah's response shouldn't surprise us at all, but Ruth's response is quite surprising. Look at verse 14. The text simply tells us that Ruth clung to her. <laughs> she, she, just, she just grabbed onto her and held to her. That, that word in the Hebrew means she, she held fast to her. And what the writer here is helping us to see is something that goes far beyond some type of physical embrace. But because this term was reserved in the Scripture for the relationship that the Israelite people had to God, this was the instruction that God gave through Moses to the people over and over again of what they were to do in reference to God. That they were to cling to God. That they were to hold fast to God. Moses says it this way in Deuteronomy 13.4 You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. Now this is exactly what Elimelech and Naomi refused to do. They, They abandoned the Lord. They didn't hold on to the Lord. They went to this wicked place. And now it's this Moabite widow from this pagan land, this outsider who seems to be the greatest example of faith that we have in this book. That's why it's the book of Ruth, not the book of Naomi. Not the book of Elimelech. It's Ruth who exercises this faith. And notice what she says, verse 16. Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or return from following you for where you go I will go and where you lodge I will lodge and your people shall be my people and your God my God. We recognize these words because we occasionally hear them in wedding ceremonies, see them on plaques and, and walls of people's homes oftentimes pointing towards their marriage and yet this has nothing to do with Marriage. I mean, the marriage will come between Ruth and Boaz, but Ruth, Ruth doesn't say this to Boaz. Boaz doesn't say this to Ruth. This is in the context of a marriage ceremony, that this is in the context of, of Ruth expressing to her mother-in-law, I am going to be devoted to you, and moreover, I'm going to be devoted to the God of your people. That this passage is in the context of Ruth's conversion. She is pledging her loyalty to Naomi, but even more, she's pledging her loyalty to Naomi's God. Even though Naomi and Elimelech before her had done a terrible job modeling what faith looked like, Ruth here is placing her faith in the one true God. The question is, how did she even know to do this? (laughs) I mean, her mother-in-law, again, was no evangelist. She was telling her, well, just go back and worship these other gods like your sister-in-law is doing. It doesn't seem her concern was for Ruth to really worship the one true God. The question then is, how, how did Ruth know about the covenant God had with His people? How did she know about the promises of God? And I think the likelihood is that, that Ruth had heard these stories all her life about the God of Israel. I mean, again, consider what's happened here historically. The, the people of God experienced these miraculous wonders in Egypt through which God led them out of Egypt. He literally parted the waters of the Red Sea. And they walked through on dry ground. And then as they are going there to the Promised Land, generations later, you have people like Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 saying, I've heard about God and what He's done. I've heard about your God and how He parted the waters of the Red Sea and how He delivered His people and how He conquered His enemies. I want to worship this God that you serve. And I think much like Rahab, Ruth had heard these stories. Even though her in-laws had failed her to share this story and to model this faith, she had heard it. And now as she is moving towards the land of promise, she places her faith in the God of promise. See, when life was hard for Ruth, she trusted in the Lord. And the context here of what she says is even that that she is praising God in the midst of her hardship. Let's think about that for a second. When when you experience hardship, do you you praise God? I mean, it it is very natural at times for us to praise God when life is good. (laughs) I got the job. Praise the Lord. Cancer free. Praise the Lord. Man, the, the floodwaters came right up to the front step, but they never came in the house. Praise the Lord. That the business deal worked out. The kids are doing great. Praise God. It is rather easy at those times to praise the Lord. But what about when you lose the job? What about instead of being cancer-free, you hear that the cancer has spread? What about when the floodwaters just wash it all away and you sit by and you watch a storm destroy everything that you've worked hard to build? Well, What about when the business deal doesn't work out and the business just collapses? Or, Or what about just those days when you go out to start the car and the battery's dead and then you get the battery started and the tire's flat and then you get down the road and you hear some noise and the car just stops working and then you go home that night and the dishwasher's flooded the kitchen and, and this kid's sick and that kid's sick and it's just, it's just these little things that in and of themselves, they're not huge but it's just one thing after another after another and then those things just pale in comparison to when you experience just overwhelming devastating loss do we praise god when that happens consider the witness of the apostle paul one who had lost much and we see his testimony over and over again of being physically beaten to the point of near death and and experiencing hunger, and famine, and loss, and shipwreck, and imprisonment. Ultimately, he will be martyred for his faith. This is what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Isn't that, isn't that a great way to say it? Your, yourself, listen, don't lose heart. Now, he doesn't say... Turn that frown upside down. He doesn't say, fake it till you make it. He says, don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. You ever feel like that? It just, it hurts. Just wasting away. Maybe it's not you. Maybe it's somebody you love. It's just wasting. And you see the effects of the fall and aging and all that. It's just wasting away says, don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. I mean, that's how Paul refers to all these things he had experienced. All the sickness, all the death, all the turmoil, all the danger. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. How, how do you look to something you can't see? That's what it means to walk by faith. Paul says you're not you're not calculating. The numbers here. You're not, you're not looking at the odds. You're not, you're not watching these things that you can tangibly check off on a list. No, you, you, are, you are putting your faith in a God you don't see. And this is foolishness to the world around you. But you are holding on to the eternal hope of the glory that lies ahead. And when you do that, then all this pain and hardship and loss, it pales in comparison. Then he can say this is a light momentary affliction. For a moments. Let me ask a question of those of you in this room who are in the second half of life. Do you remember how heartbroken you were when you were eight years old and that boy or girl wouldn't go out with you? <laughs> Do you remember how devastating it was in third grade to get an F on that test? Do you remember what it was when you were a young child to think the whole world was over? And now you look back on those things, and what do you do? I'm guessing you don't go home today and stare at a blank wall and lament that spelling test. You probably look back on it and think, if I knew then what I know now and I can't help but think, perhaps one day, in glory, we will look back at at devastating hardship, at just overwhelming pain and loss. And maybe in that moment we will say, I wish I knew then what I experience now. And the good news of the Christian life is, We can know it now when we walk by faith. And when we trust in God. That can lead us in our moments of hardship like Ruth to say to Naomi, Naomi, this God that you've done a miserable job following, I want Him to be my God. And in the midst of my pain and suffering, I want to trust in Him. And I believe Ruth said this because she understands something that I don't think Naomi... Fully understood at this point. And it's this, that third point in your outline. I think Ruth understood that God is at work in our hard times to accomplish his good plan. God is at work in our hard times to accomplish his good plan. Say, so Naomi, Naomi returns to Bethlehem with her daughter in law, Ruth, and, and notice the response of the women. We know that Naomi's been gone for at least 10 years, maybe more. But this is a small community town. I mean, they, they knew who she was. And as she comes back, they just simply look at her and they're like, wait, is, is that Naomi? Naomi's back. Is that Naomi? Naomi's name, by the way, meant pleasant. But notice what she says to them. Don't call me Naomi. <laughs> what is she saying? I, there is nothing pleasant about my life now. Call me mara mara means bitter she said I, I i'm not pleasant i am bitter and more so god has dealt bitterly with me the almighty she says has dealt very bitterly with me i went away full she didn't but that's what she says she went away in famine and starving but notice how she's kind of reinventing this along the way because she's blaming god for everything i went away full and the lord brought me back empty Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She is bitter. Why? Because she does not see how God can be both sovereign and good. She doesn't recognize how God might be using the hardest thing she's ever experienced ultimately for his good purposes. She doesn't see How God can be in control and his walking through this pain with her to bring her to a place that she never expected she would go to. And yet, that is what God is doing here. I mean, you don't even have to read to the end of the book to see this, just the first chapter. It starts and it ends in Bethlehem, it starts with famine and it ends with a feast. (laughs) But then you read till the end and what do you see? Turn there with me. Ruth chapter 4. This bitter woman. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Pleasant. My life is over. Better for you daughters-in-law to go back to false gods and pagan gods. There is nothing for me. There is nothing for you in Judah. I just want to go there and die. Nothing for those women to say to me other than, Look at old bitter Naomi coming down the street. But notice what they will now say. Ruth chapter 4, we get to the point where God sends this kinsman redeemer, Boaz, and he marries Ruth, and Ruth and Boaz have a child. And then Naomi sits, verse 16, with that child, her grandchild. Then Naomi took their child, took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood, listen, they're not naming Naomi now. Look, they gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. God has blessed Naomi. God has continued this line. God has given her an heir. This is nothing like what she thought she would experience. But even in her lack of faith, God was at work. And then continue, they named him Obed, He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. David who would reign as the great king of Israel. That that land that they left and abandoned because of famine, one day their heir David would rule from there. But not just that. Another would come. A greater king who would rule over all creation. Pastor John Piper says it this way, and I'll I'll leave you with this, with this, this picture we see of the goodness of God in the midst of this. Who would have imagined that in the worst of all times, the period of the judges, God was quietly moving in the tragedies of a single family to prepare the way for the greatest king of Israel. But not only that, He was working to fill Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and their friends with great joy if anything has fallen in on you to make your future look hopeless, learn from Ruth that God is right now at work for you to give you a future and a hope. Trust Him. Wait patiently. And the ominous clouds that are big with mercy will break with blessing on your head. God is at work, friends. He is sovereign, and He is good. May we put our trust in Him. If you would stand together as I pray for us. Father, You have instructed us to walk by faith and not by sight. And You have given us this Lord's Day a a picture of what that looks like. And we see in Naomi one that walked by sight. One that in the midst of her pain shook her fist at you. One who, who, who blamed those things on you. She, she understood you were sovereign, but she didn't see how you could be good. And perhaps that's the struggle for some this morning. And perhaps they are wrestling. They have been wrestling with that very question. Lord, if you are sovereign, how, how can you be good and allow such wickedness and evil and loss? God, I pray that you might shine the light for us on the gospel this morning that we might see the real end of the story. It goes far beyond Ruth chapter 4. It goes to the day when we see all things come to fruition. It goes to the day where we fully understand what it is that Christ took the penalty for our sin, that the curse that we deserve, and He died in our place and offers this great exchange where we can receive His righteousness that He earned for His obedience where we don't deserve it but by grace You offer it to us. That's the Gospel. And You call us to trust in You. And Lord, You don't tell us anywhere in Your Word that if we will trust in You, this life will be so easy. Or that this life will be without loss. Rather, You tell us, Lord, that in the midst of our loss, You are right there with us. And You are leading us to the day when there is no more loss. You're leading us to the day where there is no more hardship. There is no more suffering. Father, would you set our sights on that day this morning that we too might walk by faith and not by sight. Would you help us to trust in you, Lord? There may be some here this morning who all they've ever known is walking by sight. Going from the next deal, the next relationship, the next thing that they think will bring them joy and fulfillment, and yet it always comes up lacking. Lord, would you help them to see they'll never find blessing in the land of Moab. And they need to repent and they need to trust in you. Would you help us to do these things by faith, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.